I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Contentious Whitechapel Bell Foundry redevelopment approved by the government. Downing Street Aid apologises for perceived conflicts of interest on approving a property loan to company he worked for. The government moves to carefully take down Grenfell Tower. And Open City announces a major new book on the social and cultural history of London pubs. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My special guest this week is Hetty O'Brien. Hetty is Assistant Opinion Editor at The Guardian. Welcome to the show. Hello. Our first story this week was covered in the AJ and also extensively delved into in a recent Guardian long read written by Hetty herself. It's all to do with Housing Minister Luke Hall granting the final approval for 3144 Architects' vision to transform the historic Grade 2 listed Whitechapel Bell Foundry into a mixed-use arts and production facility and boutique hotel. The Bell Foundry is Britain's oldest factory, opening in 1570 and responsible for casting the bells of Big Ben and Philadelphia's Liberty Bell. Running for hundreds of years, the factory finally closed its doors in 2017 due to economic reasons. The controversial plans were called in by the minister in December 2019, after Tower Hamlet's planning committee narrowly voted to approve the redevelopment. Despite more than 750 objections and a rival plan to return the factory to its active use. One such attempt to prevent its redevelopment came from Reform Heritage, an industrial heritage trust founded by Prince Charles, which had sought to buy the foundry from US developer Raycliffe and return it to its active use. However, with the minister's latest approval, the historic building will instead be turned into a cafe, production space and artists' studios under the plans by the architect, with an extension to the building which will become a boutique hotel. Hitting out against the decision, Claire Wood, chief executive of the UK Historic Building Preservation Trust, said, Instead of being a revitalised place of pilgrimage of global interest and a huge boast to the local economy, it will be another boutique hotel of no interest to anyone but its transient clientele. By contrast, planning inspector Paul Griffiths found that 3144's proposed plans were, quote, very well considered in the way that it deals with the changes necessary for effective reuse, and that the designs were complementary to the historic fabric of the building. 
So Hetty, what's this all about? Why is this so special uh, a building? And it's caught so many people's imagination. And perhaps you could paint our listeners a kind of picture of the foundry and exactly why it is something that deserves to be preserved. Um, and also, you know, why keeping these premises in their normal use is so significant with regard to the, the cultural significance of this foundry in particular. I guess I'll start by kind of describing the foundry. Um, if you walk along the Whitechapel Road, which is a road that is kind of um, has been, well, looks very different to how it would have looked, I suppose, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, largely is um, kind of office blocks, co-working spaces, cafes, and I suppose you could say is kind of indicative of the service economy that drives much of London's general kind of economy. And the foundry is quite um, a stark digression to this to this model. It looks very old. It looks kind of warped and um, it's built. Its walls are slightly bulging and um, the actual building itself is the result of a number of buildings that have kind of fused together over time so I think there's at the front there's the original foundry shop which is um, which which is this kind of I suppose Georgian frontage with yellow kind of ochre yellow wooden um, shop front and that's the kind of historic listed part of the foundry but then actually around the side you've got um, an old coaching inn that has fused together with a jeweler's shop um, and also at the back you have this slightly less um, notable 1980s extension which is where um, Raycliffe, the developer, plans to now build the hotel extension, what is the boutique hotel which has been quite controversial. Um, I think what's so special about the building, I mean as a building itself it's interesting because it, I guess it's developed over time and is indicative of the changing uses of the space around it. Um, but really, it's what goes on inside that building that has attracted so much attention that people think is really important, which is actually bell founding slash casting. Um, and interestingly, actually, the bell foundry was not just a bell foundry. Um, my dad is a painter and a few of his friends were kind of sculptors and makers and would often go and get things cast at the bell foundry, which is how I became interested in it um it's been around for absolutely years and if you're a kind of artist or um or tradesman in london you will have um definitely have heard of the whitechapel bell foundry it's not just for people who are interested in bells um and i think within the context it's 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 really it's really it's the fact that it's the last kind of really obvious industrial major industrial space in um well, in in east in that part of East London and in Zone One, those kind of spaces are increasingly um, rare, and so I think really it's a, it's a kind of story that is not just about Bell Foundry; it's about the changing face of London and who London is for, and the way in which the city is used, and the type of businesses that occupy that space. Certainly, in reading your Guardian long read, what's really fascinating is all of the different people and interests which kind of get excited and interested in the bell foundry but it's obvious that bells are they're, they're pretty sexy objects you know they excite everyone they're a kind of lightning rod they uh you can put it in the the pages of a broadsheet newspaper and people are going to say oh this is important i'm going to read it but what about all the other manufacturing industries based in london like obviously the east end was famous for textiles uh work uh, there's still there's still places like that going uh which are potentially at threat of redevelopment um shouldn't heritage campaigners be working as hard to preserve all manufacturing as they are to preserve heritage bell production I mean I, I think so it's funny you say bells are sexy objects because I in some ways found them um, 
quite esoteric when I was writing the piece, you know, trying to kind of explain people to people what I was doing and why bells mattered. And actually it is quite difficult to say that people still need bells today. I'm not sure they do. What they need is the kind of ability to learn skills that might be learned through bell founding and can then be kind of taken elsewhere. And, and you know, you talk to, there's a guy, Peter Scully at, at the Bartlett Centre, um, who, who works on um, the crossover between these kind of what you might, what some might describe as quite um, antiquated casting technologies to do with bell founding and how these can be used in ca- the casting of, say, orthopaedic implants or things that have a much more obvious use value in, in the present day. Um, but yeah, I agree that this is um, partly it's because of the fact that this was a place that Big Ben was cast and the Liberty Bell was cast. And, and so there's an obvious kind of um, res- resonance as to why it should be saved and, and why the campaign was kind of founded to, to save this place. But um, but I think that should be extended to other in- sites of industry as well. And I think it's particularly what is particularly a shame is when people say, oh, well, these are kind of dirty um you know, uh, they have this kind of vision of, of industry that is very outdated. It's based on this kind of idea of the great smog and London being this place where actually, you know, these polluted industries no longer belong there. And actually, that's just not how things need to work now. That You can actually have kind of environmentally friendly forms of manufacturing. Um, and also the idea that you should sort of outsource anything that's polluted to the countryside. I mean, we just shouldn't have anything that's like polluting that much anymore. So, So people, I think, have this kind of slightly outdated idea of what industry in London could look like and I think that's a real shame but yeah I agree we should be extending this concern to other um, going businesses and, and industries as as well as much as we should around bells. I mean it took about seven months in total to, to research and write the piece and I spoke to probably about 25 people maybe 23 something like that very few of them actually made it into the piece, which was a real shame. I filed one of my initial drafts was sort of, I think, nine or 10,000 words or close to that and had a lot more voices in there. Someone said to me when I was doing the interviews and I'd spoken to the, this source sort of three or four times, they said, you've got enough to write a book here. And although I don't want to write a book about bells, I think it's a really, um, I think it's indicative that you just go and speak to so many people and you kind of hear their life stories and then you sort of don't end up featuring them in the piece simply because of space. Um, but yeah, I think overall it was um, quite a quite a long, a long-winded process, but actually it means that you feel like at the end of it, you've got something that is a kind of accurate picture of what's happening and hopefully, I hope, does justice to that. So, Hetty, this isn't just about a building, is it? London's East End has a famous history of manufacturing, of which this building is clearly a testament to. Um, It's one of the longest-running factories in Britain. It was responsible for, as you say, many culturally significant bells and artworks and other things. Um, By losing this building, are we also losing a key part of our physical cultural heritage, as well as that intangible living heritage of the East End? I mean, I think the physical cultural heritage is it is interesting because a lot of the way in which heritage preservation in the UK takes place is almost preserving buildings in amber. And you could say, arguably, that the current plans to redevelop this, um, obviously they get rid of the 1980s extension, but in terms of the actual preservation of the front of the foundry, the listed building, how it looks on the outside will maintain will be, will remain much the same. 
Um, but it really is about the, I think the most important thing isn't the physical cultural heritage, it's really the intangible living heritage. And I think that's some kind of broader problem in the UK that we don't really place enough um, importance on the, the kind of skills that people use and in an everyday sense or in a kind of industrial or working sense. And a lot of the things that we value as history are things like big kind of country seats and baronial manners, statues, um, things that actually everyday normal in inverted, in inverted commas normal people wouldn't necessarily have that much to do with whether it's something that is kind of industrial slightly dirty and gritty like a foundry is arguably much more important to a local community currently because also it provides opportunities for skills and training and I think that's something that people locally in the area the campaign to save the foundry has very much been driven by people in the east end who feel that this is really um, an important space, not simply because of the history of the space, although that's obviously a big part of it, but also because of how this space provides a place in which people can learn about skills that aren't just about bells, they're about you know, founding, casting, things that have real um, crossover application to other fields as well. So I think that's those skills will be lost in this part of London when that building is lost. So it really is, I think it's, partly about the physical heritage but also really about the intangible heritage and i think what you're saying there yeah you know, it's really telling because if you think a lot of our, our listeners are probably architects and if you look at that planning inspector's remark you know it's not there's no doubt that what architecturally was proposed for the buildings isn't necessarily high quality but it's really this story is more than simply the architecture itself yeah how does this case this sort of fit into that wider context of gentrification being experienced across London and many other cities across the UK and when we look at the kind of resistance to this project do you think we're possibly reaching a turning point where some of that physical and intangible heritage could soon be valued enough to override market forces like a private company wanting to build a boutique hotel as you say the architectural plans for this well, to my mind, they're, they're a lot more sensitive than they could have otherwise been. But to just venerate the building itself is to miss the actual point of why this building matters, which is, again, it's about the skills, the the um, the, the kind of opportunities, the jobs, the, the idea that actually this is a place where people can learn something and come and kind of develop a skill that they might not otherwise be able to develop anywhere in, in, in London, really. Um, and I think this does tie into, um, yeah, the, the kind of gentr- the broader gentrification issue. And what you're seeing, and this came up again and again with interviewees for this piece, is that London is becoming a city of kind of glassy financial um, buildings and service economy um, kind of um, businesses. And so you, you're creating this city where there is a kind of two classes as people who work in the in the banks and the big glassy financial buildings and the kind of Canary Wharf style developments. And then there's people who serve those either as kind of uber drivers or um, people who work serving coffee and really that that's what people felt really strongly about this was a a, a kind of a part of a world that is being really um destroyed by kind of i guess the vested interests that um that, that are kind of shaping the city um and people who are kind of looking to redeem capital investments um and rather than thinking about you know who is this city for and, and who who benefits from li- from living here um, and I think there's something about that in the kind of something that came up again and again was this idea of the, the new development. And I mean, who knows, it might be much better than people are saying, I want to be kind of be fair to the developers because I think they've done a better job than they might have otherwise done at kind of being sensitive to the historic use of the building. 
But having said that, I think that um, something that people felt very strongly was that um, this would be yeah a wall in a wall in their face, and I think that kind of speaks to the way in which the kind of um, architectural uh, landscape of London is changing as well. Buildings that were going up now and kind of developments are actually much less porous to kind of um, people, you know, pedestrians and people walking around the area. That there's not a sense of kind of that there's a sense of a kind of boundary being erected in people's face where you know you're not going to go into um to a boutique hotel unless you've got the actual cash to spend there and so we're creating a city where the occupation of space is is tied to the amount of money you earn and i think that's um that that's really sad and i think what's really interesting is obviously we're talking about this now because the housing minister luke hall refused to step in he refused to intervene and stop this from happening although he had an opportunity um, but what's really interesting is that the government in recent times has kind of repositioned itself as a defender of heritage, um, you know, particularly with regards to the physical heritage of towns outside of London uh, in the form of buildings like high streets and so on. Uh, but also with these like nationally significant objects like you know, statues and historic sites and so on. Um, does this failure to protect the bell, bell foundry in Whitechapel, does that signify a kind of hypocrisy uh, in that policy? Um, or is it just the case that the heritage of the East End is less important than heritage in the shires? I'd say it's kind of a continuation of that policy rather than a hypocrisy, because I don't think that kind of government motivated ostensive kind of care for heritage is actually really motivated by a concern for history. You see this again and again with with the government's um, kind of approach to actually real attempts to confront the true history of British imperialism and colonialism. They don't actually want people to think about history. They just want history to be a kind of politically motivated tool that they use to kind of reshape the narrative currently and and I, I suppose kind of tie into this broader culture war. So yes, you'll see this quite superficial interest in things like statues um, and monuments to great leaders and Winston Churchill, et cetera, et cetera, but actually not a real care for what, what history means or even a kind of attempt to really address what happened in history. Um, and I think that's, you know, again, it comes back to the history of real people doing r- real things, whether that's working class history, industrial history, colonial history, there's not there's not actually a, a sense of kind of really confronting that. And so it's not surprising that the government signed off this um, th- th- these plans. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. Open City friends receive a bunch of perks, including discounts on all Open City events and publications, audio walking tours of amazing parts of London, and friends events at special locations around the city. Visit open-city.org.uk forward slash support for more information. Our next story has been covered in the Sunday Times and Independent, but has had little coverage in the national news and radio and the architectural media. It's all to do with the apology of Boris Johnson's close aide, Edward Lister, over perceived conflicts of interest surrounding a £185 million loan he approved to a property developer he was also being paid to advise. Lister greenlit the payment as chair of the Affordable Housing Authority, Homes England. The £185 million was paid to property developer Delancey, where at the time of the transaction in 2019, he was a paid strategic advisor. 
When confronted with these facts by the Sunday Times, Lister said, I apologise for not taking sufficient steps to prevent any perception of a conflict. He went on to say that he acted in accordance with the Code of Conduct and Delancey did not ask him to lobby on behalf of them. This comes after he was forced to step down as the Prime Minister's golf envoy in April as it revealed he was in talks to take on a six-figure salary job with a lobbying firm which had stakes in the region. So Hetty, this story comes as the latest in a string of controversies in the government and the Conservative Party. Uh, David Cameron and Greensill, uh, Priti Patel's alleged breaching of the ministerial code with regards to PPE contracts, and Matt Hancock's questionable motives in handing out COVID contracts. What does this case indicate about the Tory party's close links to the property sector? And, and why is government and property development so intertwined? Yeah, I mean, I think it feels like a you know, there's been a catalogue of, of cases like this where you've seen kind of conflicts of interest or cronyism um, and it kind of paints this picture of kind of broader corruption and also a sense of exceptionalism that the normal rules don't necessarily apply to um, the people who are currently running the country. Um, and I think what's interesting about this certainly is the kind of proximity of house builders to the Conservative Party. And it's something that is explains so many of the kind of current um, problems afflicting people, particularly in tower blocks. Um, I think obviously Grenfell was the first thing that really shined a light on the problems affecting tower blocks with flammable cladding. Um, and I think it was something like property developers responsible for flats covered in that kind of cladding have donated millions to the Conservatives since a Grenfell fire, which really helps explain why exactly so little has been done to actually protect people. So now you have people who are kind of owing thousands and thousands of pounds um, to, to their freeholders um, to in order to kind of pay for things like waking watches and pay for the um, r- repairment of cladding. Um, and the government are doing very little. I know that they made, I think, what was it, a two billion, maybe slightly more than two billion, I can't remember the exact figure, available to people living in tall blocks. Um, but actually, that's really very insubstantial. And they basically have left the business model of these house builders intact because they have received so much, um, so much money from them. And there's such a kind of close relationship to that. I think what's really interesting about this is that in in a lot of the reporting, it's not really gone into much detail about what the actual purpose of the loan to Delancey was. Um, But actually, that is actually kind of fascinating to think that, uh, you know, a a government owned thing, Homes England, which is to provide affordable housing, uh, is an extending an enormous loan uh, to private development company effectively um you know something surely uh when it comes to delivering affordable housing that could be something that homes england might be might be doing itself you know delivering those homes um you know why is the government spending so much money outsourcing to private companies you know in this instance uh the loan was given to delancey you know, as an example delancey are working on the redevelopment of elephant and castle shopping center um uh, and, and you know, rather, ra- why is the government doing giving loans to companies like this rather than building and financing the projects themselves? Yeah, I mean, it was just interesting that I think the Homes England were rules were flexible enough to allow like luxury developers to access that money. So it's kind of it speaks to this kind of. I think I mean the whole thing I think is really reflected, re- really reflects the kind of broader economic political economic worldview of the current government and i think it's quite a difficult i mean 
previously you had kind of 10 years of austerity and a clear um, intention of the government to really cut back spending um, at all levels of kind of the state. But now what you have is a slightly more, um, this slightly more difficult to understand picture where you have seemingly like a willingness to spend a lot in public handouts and yet in a way that has no clear coherent strategy behind it and simply seems to be about kind of either winning political favours or about if the, if there is a kind of strategy behind it and you see this very much with things like test and trace and the creation of the the scrapping of public health in England and the creation of a new body that was initially going to be spearheaded by Dido Harding um, to kind of to take on the kind of previous job of public health England and you, and it seems to be a kind of attempt to basically um, use the state to create to give to give to give handouts to the private sector and therefore kind of hollow the state out from within and it's it's sort of like a kind of Keynesianism without a kind of any commitment to actually building a welfare state or really building state capacity and so instead of for example during the pandemic like instead of actually using that money to build up NHS capacity particularly around things like laboratories and um, com- and contact tracing um, they instead give that to I mean the stories for everyone's familiar with it now they give that to big um, outsourcing giants and they create a string of privately privately run lighthouse labs um, to deal with this and it and it does feel like although it can be difficult to really attribute a kind of clear political ideology to the current conservative government i think the shape of one can be seen in the um insistence upon using state money to basically fund the private sector and create a kind of bigger role for the private sector within the state itself and i suppose you could say i mean i guess that's kind of state capture i'm not really sure how what term would kind of accurately describe that um, from a kind of political theory sense, but I think it is. I think that is really, you know, what is happening, and um, and I think that's kind of how we explain the strange political economic worldview of the current government. Our third story relates to the future of Grenfell Tower and was covered in the AJ earlier this week. The burnt-out remains of the high-rise block have been standing for nearly four years since the devastating fire, which claimed seventy-two lives. Now the government is tentatively suggesting that that plans should be made for the careful taking down of the building, which has now been advised by structural engineers on the site as something that should happen. Uh, In a letter to residents, Alistair Waters, director of the Grenfell site at the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, said that it would be at least a year before any decision on the tower's future was implemented. Waters also added that he wants to ensure bereaved families, survivors and residents have access to the information that will inform a decision on the tower before it is made. This comes as the ongoing inquiry into the disaster continues, with public hearings for the second phase of the investigation taking place at the moment. So Hetty, what's this all about? We're now at a stage where talks about the tower coming down are being held, but we've still yet to see justice for the victims, and there's no idea how to sensitively memorialise this site in the future. Uh, The public inquiry into the Grenfell Tower was ordered the day following the horrific event on the 17th of June 2017. This is nearly four years ago now. What are your thoughts on how events have progressed? I mean, it's taken absolutely years to rehouse people. I don't know if all everybody's even been rehoused yet. I know that last year there were still people who hadn't been. Um, and I think the question of memorialising is is quite a good one. I mean, obviously, first you should ask the, the Grenfell victims how they want this to be memorialised and if they want this to be torn down. Um, but second to that, I think it's 
the fact that you can't really memorialise things with statues or, or buildings without actually ensuring that this never happens again. And I think that's clearly not the case. I mean, thousands of people, as, as I said previously, are kind of stuck in these blocks with huge fire safety issues um, and have very little support to actually help them. And there seems to be no real um, real attempt to make the house builders responsible for this pay. Um, and if you want to memorialise something as horrific as Grenfell Tower, you don't you don't build a memorial simply or build a statue to it. You actually provide the resources and support to ensure this never happens again. I mean, like after the Second World War, they didn't just build statues. They also built a welfare state. And that, that feels like what is really missing here is that you might get a kind of... I, I, I wouldn't want for the, que- the question about how to memorialise this in a physical sense to detract from the very real political economic things that still need to happen to ensure that something like this never happens again. Our final item is all to do with Open City announcing a crowdfunding campaign for its new book, which is the official publication of the 2020 Open House Festival, telling the story of London through its pubs. Open City is aiming to sell a thousand pre-ordered copies of the book at a discounted price of £14.99 and is so far halfway to meeting its target. Um, For centuries, the London pub has been a place of social fermentation, where all manner of people have come to drink, think, share stories and company. Surviving plagues, bombs, fires and floods, they've borne witness to wakes, weddings and the writing of world-changing manifestos. London pubs have provided the social and architectural infrastructure for civic life to thrive, with a remarkable varied mix of spaces for meeting, making up, breaking up and cultural conviviality. From opulent former gin palaces to humble taverns to micro-pubs and community-owned pubs, the story of London's more than 3,500 pubs tells the story of the city itself. The new book, called Public House, A Cultural and Social History of the London Pub, will celebrate the incredible diversity, design and stories of London's public houses as we are at last able to enjoy them again. Tracing the development of the pub as an enduring institution through societal upheavals, the book will connect changes in pubs with wider social and political movements. It will be filled with original drawings, photography and archive material. It's edited by Christina Montiero and David Knight of East End Architecture Practice DKCM. It features contributions by Rupert Huck MP, the architectural historian Neil Chassaw, the comedian Issy Suti and the Mayor of London Sadiq Khan. Um, As part of the crowdfunding campaign, you can pre-order your own hardback copy for an early bird price of £14.99. Copies have been flying off the future shelves, and anyone signing up as an Open City friend donating £10 or more a month can also receive the book for free. So Hetty, in many ways, pubs form a quintessential part of British culture and heritage. They form a social space visited by young and old, artists and academics, builders and businessmen, and transcend the class system. Linking back to what we spoke about at the top of the show, with regards to physical and intangible heritage, why do you think pubs are such an ingrained part of London culture specifically? yeah I mean they're they're so they feel like kind of living rooms in a way for for the city and it's funny when you walk walk around London and quite often on kind of back streets in um, Victorian um, in areas of kind of Victorian development um, with lots of terrace houses you see these um, pubs on the corner that had now been converted into houses and you kind of realize I think through that how much more ubiquitous pubs used to be particularly when people maybe didn't have as much space in their domestic 
space and therefore they, the pub was like a sitting room for a lot of people and they would go there very regularly. What has been your experience of pubs in London and also you know, growing up in London? Do you have any favourites or you know, have you discovered any hidden gems along the way which you've observed playing a big role in their local community which perhaps you could share with our listeners? So I don't really have a favourite because I'd say that I just enjoy drinking in pretty much all the pubs I've ever drunk in. I've never really had a bad experience in a pub. The one that I thought was is quite interesting, I guess, for, for listeners is the um, one that my friend Dan Hancock's wrote a great piece about recently for Vice, which is the Ivy House, um, which is around the corner in, well, around the corner from where I live in Peckham. Um, and in April 2012, it was closed and sold to a property developer who planned to get it basically um, turned into flats so I guess a similar kind of story to the kind of um, gentrification um, stories we were discussing earlier Um, but before they um, before this happened the regular drinkers managed to get it listed um, as a grade two listed building by English Heritage um, days before it closed down and then they applied to Southwark Council to have it listed as what's known as an asset of community value which is, I think it's a status created by the Cameron's 2011 Localism Act. And so that basically protected it from immediate sale and gave them a six month period in which they could kind of organize to bid for the, to own the pub themselves. So they managed to do that um, through months of campaigning and lots of like paperwork. And now it's been, well, it was reopened as a cooperative which issued shares and was restored to its kind of former 1930s glory um, and reopened yet in 2013 and it's a kind of I I mean Dan's piece is great on this but it's an example of um, the period's fashion for improved public houses so pubs with more facilities than just a place to drink so you had kind of pubs with function rooms and dance halls dining rooms um, and it's that the Ivy House definitely has that. There's this um, stage in there where we used to go and watch bands play. Um, and I think it was like the most exciting place to go on a Friday night um, when I was at school. And the, the, the kind of stage itself feels like a kind of setting from like a David Lynch movie with these kind of glittering curtains. Um, and yeah, so I, I'd say that's definitely a, a good pub that I would recommend going to. Hetty, I'm 100% with you on that. And obviously the new Open City publication is a great celebration of pubs in London and a great way for everybody to reconnect uh, and enjoy uh, this fascinating uh, part of our uh, heritage, both physical and cultural. Um, it's been a great pleasure to have you once again on the show. Um, where can our listeners uh, find out a little bit more about the things that you're writing? What's the best place for them to go to? Uh, probably uh, my Twitter, which is at Hetty, H-E-T-T-I-E, Veronica, V-E-R-O-N-I-C-A, um, because I don't, I've, I, ha- I, I once had a website, but I haven't updated it in about um, two years. So, so, <laughs> so yeah, that's the best place. Thank you. And fantastic to have your voice on Lundown, a true friend of the show. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk support and sign up as an Open City friend. 
Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.